0: How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of God abides forever. As we get ready to study God's word, let's take a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to study your word this evening. We thank you for the insight that your word gives us, for the way it instructs us on how we should live and how we should think. Now, Father, as we study this uh, prayer of Daniels in Daniel 9, we pray that it might challenge us in our own prayer life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Daniel chapter 9 is a very famous chapter in Scripture because of what happens after verse 20. but. The prayer of Daniel in the first 19 verses is really important for us to study and understand as a model for prayer. Uh, Someday I'm going to do a study of all the prayers in the Scripture because I think there's a lot that we can learn uh, from the prayers of the Scripture that would challenge each of us in in our own prayer lives. What we see in Daniel is that Daniel is faced with a problem. Now, the particular problem that Daniel is faced with here is a national problem. But it doesn't matter whether it's a national problem or whether it's a personal problem. It doesn't matter uh, whether it is a, an economic problem, whether it's a, a problem of uh, of uh, health or our finances or career or marriage problems, because the principles for solving problems are all the same, and you are all are familiar with those uh, stress busters and problem-solving devices that we've studied. Now, sometimes people ask, why isn't prayer considered one of the uh, problem-solving devices? Prayer is a mechanism through which the problem-solving devices function. It is not, per se, a problem-solving device, and we'll see that in our analysis this evening, because in this prayer, Daniel is going to use a first stress buster, which is confession of sin. And so we'll learn a lot about what is involved in confession of sin from an Old Testament perspective. What happens in Daniel 9 is Daniel is relating, he's identifying the problem in his life, which in this case is a national problem, and that is the result of of Israel's disobedience. In effect, it's self-induced misery and divine discipline created through the problem of sin. And because of their national sin, they're outside the land, they're outside the place of blessing, and they're in captivity in Babylon. Now, last time we began to look at prayer, and there are several principles I highlighted as we began to go through this this prayer of Daniel's. First of all, we saw that God may respond to prayer and actually alter history because of the prayer. principle in Scripture is that prayer changes things. James chapter 4, James says, you have not because you ask not, clearly indicating that prayer changes things. And there are many examples in Scripture one that comes to mind is in Ezekiel. When uh, God, after the um, uh, rebellion of the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai, while Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, he is um, he hears the sound of, of the people down below the mountain, and they have enticed Aaron to build the golden calf, and they're having an orgy down there while Moses is up getting the lawn. So Moses goes down, and God is threatening to kill all the Jews except for Moses. And then Moses prays and he argues with God on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant and the basis of the promises that God has made that he can't do that. And so God relents. Not that he was going to go through with it in the first place, but we see that, that Moses' prayer has an impact in history. The same is true for us not every time. Many times God may say no, and God is going to say no to Daniel in this chapter, just as God said no to uh, Paul when Paul prayed three tri- three times to have the thorn in the flesh removed. Nevertheless, the principle is we are to engage God in prayer, and at times God will respond to that prayer, and he will change history because of that prayer. second principle we saw is that prayer often needs to be formulated in terms of promises. Now, in the Old Testament, a Jewish believer has certain promises that are much more specific than the promises that God gives a church-age believer. Promises that God gives a church-age believer in many ways are more general, but at times they are more specific, especially in dealing with certain kinds of testing and certain kinds of temptation. So prayer needs to be formulated in terms of the promises that God has given. That means that you have to have a certain knowledge of doctrine. There has to be some study preceding the prayer. Third thing we saw was that prayer should utilize biblical language from these promises utilize the language as we saturate our soul with the Word of God and with doctrine, then that ought to characterize our prayer so that when we pray, we are using the same words that God uses in a prayer, not just that God uses in His promises, not just simply, uh regurgitating the promises or reminding God of the promises, but as we'll see in this chapter, Daniel's vocabulary throughout this chapter, throughout this prayer, is vocabulary that is lifted out of Deuteronomy and Jeremiah, showing that Daniel has just saturated his soul with these books. When he said when it says in verse uh verse three that Daniel is going to seek God. That ver that word itself, as we'll see, is a word that comes right out of the promise of God gives to Jeremiah and Jeremiah, uh, and as well as in Deuteronomy. And it is a word that implies investigation, time, concentration. So we need to not only formulate our prayers in terms of the promises, but also utilize the language in those promises. That verb is one that is used again and again and again in the prophets and in the Mosaic law. Fourth principle we saw was that prayer times need to t- needs to take priority over the details of life. Prayer at times needs to take priority over the details of life, and that is the purpose of fasting. It wasn't that somehow God was impressed with their sincerity or their passion or their intensity because they decided to give up a meal. I always laugh at Fundies. You know, they're so funny. Uh, We ought to laugh at ourselves and laugh at them because they always want to impress God with their fasting. And I go to different churches, and I've been around different, a lot of different churches, and it always uh, sort of amuses me, and I get a chuckle when I hear a pastor announce that the church this next couple of weeks is going to fast, and the fast usually does not exclude juices. You know, he's always got all these caveats in there, and the reason is, of course, you know, he's afraid that if somebody fasts and they're diabetic, then they're going to get in trouble, and they miss the whole point. The point isn't fasting. The point is that the individual praying is so consumed with the importance of his prayer and investigating what the Scripture says about the subject that it takes precedence over taking care of the details of life. So much so that that he's not going to take the time to prepare a meal and to eat. And of course, in the ancient world, they didn't have microwave dinners. They couldn't run down to uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken or Burger King and get a meal. They It took hours to prepare and to clean up. So rather than to be distracted by the hours of preparation and cleanup, They would forego the meal and just focus on the task at hand. Then the fifth principle we saw was that prayer should be built in terms of a particular character, characteristic of God or two. As we'll see in this prayer, Daniel is going to focus on two or three characteristics of God, and then he is going to present his petition to God on the basis of God's character, on the basis of who God is. Last time we started with Daniel 9.3. Daniel 9.3, Daniel begins to uh, describe his prayer. He says, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. The phrase, I gave my attention, literally in the Hebrew means I set my face or gave my face toward God, set my face towards God, which means now he is going to concentrate on God's plan and what God has said about his plan for Israel. It's an idiom for concentration and for intensity. He is going to be so intent on developing his case for prayer that it's going to take the place and set aside any time for meals or anything else. He is going to seek God by prayer, and as we look at this verbiage, the key word here is to seek, which is a word that is found in various key passages in the Old Testament. For example, in Jeremiah 29, 12, and 13, we have a key promise that Daniel is relying upon here. This, as I said last time, this presents the potential that was available to the Jews at this particular time in history. God says in Jeremiah twenty nine twelve Then you will call upon me, the you here is a plural, referring to the nation, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with a whole heart. And the key word here is to seek God, and that implies a certain level of intensity on the part of Israel. And this command here has its roots in the statement, I mean, this uh, promise in Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen has its root in Deuteronomy. Uh, 429, there we read, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. So in Deuteronomy, again and again, this terminology is used that the Jews are to seek the Lord their God uh, and search for him with all their heart and with all their soul. The problem is that Daniel is seeking God with all his heart and soul, but Daniel does not necessarily, what's true for Daniel is not true for the rest of the nation. Many of the Jews are not positive to the word, even after 70 years of captivity. Many Jews did not return at the end of the uh, 70-year captivity. Uh, there was a group that returned under, under Ezra in 535. There was another group that returned under Zerubbabel later on about 518. There was another group that returned under Nehemiah uh, about 444 B.C. But these uh, groups that returned... Uh, only represented a small percentage of the Jews that were scattered throughout the ancient world. And so those Jews still remain scattered. There were pockets in Alexandria. There were pockets up in Turkey and Cappadocia. There were pockets of Jews and scattered throughout the what had been the Babylonian Empire and then the Persian Empire all the way to the Indus River. There were these various groups of Jews that were scattered throughout the world. There were, there were uh, Jews that were going to uh, even as far as Greece and to Rome. And that was the beginning of the diaspora. But the nation as a whole, ethnic Jews as a whole, were not returning to God with all their heart and all their soul. Therefore, God was not going to allow them to have a complete return to the land. There's only a partial return in uh, 535 B.C. Now, one question that has come up, somebody asked me the other day, and that is, does Israel have a right to the land today? Because they are not a regenerate people. Obviously, Scripture teaches, and we've studied the passages, that God is going to bring Israel back at the end of the tribulation, and that is as a regenerate nation. So does Israel have a right to the land now? And the way to answer that is even in 585 B.C., when God took them out of the land, the land was still theirs. The title deed for the land of Israel still read to the Jews. God never gave that land to anybody else, and he never took that land away from them permanently. So that land is always the the land that God has given to Israel. And then in various passages in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, there are the promises that God is going to bring the nation back to form an unregenerate nation. And that unregenerate nation must be there in order for... The Antichrist to be able to sign a peace treaty with Israel, uh, at the beginning of the tribulation. There had to be a nation, uh, re- a, a nation returned to the land, a group of Jews returned to the land, and a, a Jewish nation in the land at the time of the incarnation for the Messiah to come. There had to be a nation there. Now that was not a regenerate nation. There were regenerate leaders who led them back Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, and others. But uh, as a whole, the Jews, after the, after the exile in Babylon, did not return as a regenerate people. They were not positive. What was a, one of the first things that happened within a couple of generations. They had given themselves completely over to the legalism of the, of the, of the Pharisees. So uh, the nation that returned in 535 B.C. was not a regenerate nation. They weren't seeking the Lord with all their heart and all their soul. They weren't positive to doctrine. But God had to bring back a segment, a a minority of Jews to the land and and at that time so that there would be a nation there for the Messiah to come to. In the same way, God's going to bring back and has has been bringing back Jews to the land uh, so there would be a nation there in preparation for what will happen at the end times. History turns on two things. One is the believer and the impact of the believer on his particular nation. As goes the believer, so goes the nation. Secondly, history turns on Israel. And if we are near the end of the church age, and the tribulation is around the corner, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, we don't know. It could be, it could be further away, we just don't know. But it stands to reason that at the end of the church age, that as the tribulation approaches, God is going to start start setting the stage for what's going to take place in the tribulation. So some prophecy may start to be fulfilled as, as in the return of unregenerate Jews to the land in order to prepare things for what will happen after the rapture. Doesn't relate to the rapture, doesn't relate to the church. It's not, the, the rapture is not dependent upon those things. In fact, there are uh, a number of people, uh, prophecy scholars, good men, who believed that there could be as much as as 10, 20, 30 years between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. In fact, if you go back and you read some of the writings by dispensationalists, uh, some of you may be familiar with a guy named Clarence Larkin. Clarence Larkin wrote a book called Dispensational Truth. Most people remember because he was an architect and he had all these tremendous intricate charts and diagrams of all the ages and all the dispensations. Clarence Larkin thought there could be as many as 70 as much as 70 years between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. Why? Well, when Clarence Larkin wrote Dispensational Truth back in 1917 or 1916, whenever it was, there was no Israel in the land. So as he was looking at history, he knew that the rapture was imminent and it could occur at any moment, and if the rapture occurred in his day, There were so many things that still had to happen before the the tribulation could even begin. The Jews would have to be brought back to the land. They would have to organize as a nation. Uh, Many other things would have to transpire. So uh, at at that time, he and many others thought that, gosh, 60, 70, 80 years could transpire between the rapture and the tribulation. The rapture ends the church age. The, The signing of the peace treaty, as we'll see when we get to the end of this chapter, the signing of the peace treaty between the prince who is to come, that is the Antichrist, And Israel is what starts the countdown of Daniel's 70th week. Now, who knows how much time is in between. It could be a few weeks, it could be a few years. But if it's a shorter time, and as we get closer to that time, it just stands to reason that we are going to see certain things happening. While there may not be a precise fulfillment of prophecy, they are certainly setting the stage for what will happen once the church is removed. Now, Daniel is going to turn to the Lord, and he is going to seek Him, and his very terminology is a reminder of these Old Testament promises that God has made to return Israel to the land, and to return all of the Jews to the land. That was not fulfilled because the Jews did not seek Him with a whole heart, as God had promised and God has called for in Deuteronomy. So Daniel says, "...I gave my attention to the Lord to seek Him." By prayer and supplications. The word here for prayer is the standard uh, Hebrew word for prayer, "palel," which has to do with uh, uh, making a request before a someone in authority, uh, seeking something. And the second word is the word translated "supplication," which is the Hebrew word "tachanunim," and that means to. It means a supplication or a petition. It means to humbly present your request to someone in authority. And the emphasis in the word supplication is on humility. It's on grace orientation. It's on dependence upon the individual granting the request. And when it comes to prayer, it emphasizes the grace orientation of the person praying. And if if there's any concept that comes through from Daniel's prayer, it's grace orientation. Remember I said that prayer itself is not a problem-solving device. It's not a stress buster. But the stress busters are often channeled through prayer. So that you start with confession. But as we analyze Daniel's prayer, we're going to see that he is—he can't pray what he's praying if he's not grace-oriented. So once again, his grace-orientation affects the quality and the depth of his prayer. We come to verse 4, Daniel 9, 4, and we read with, all, with um, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. Now, at this point, we're going to enter into the prayer itself. What I want to do on the overhead is draw a bit of an outline to emphasize the main points of this prayer. Let's break it down this way. From verse 4 down through verse uh Nineteen, we have Daniel's prayer. And from 4b to 14, the emphasis is on Israel's sin and confession. It starts in the second part of verse 4 with the adoration of God. Then, verses 5 to 14, we have the Uh, rehearsal or the acknowledgement of sin, the acknowledgement of Israel's sin. In verses 5 through 6, he outlines Israel's history of disobedience. Then in verses 7 through 9a, the contrast is made between Israel's disobedience and God's righteousness. And in verses in seven through nine a the, the <coughs> contrast is made not only between God, with God's righteousness but it's contrasted with Israel's shame. So in seven a the emphasis is on divine righteousness, in seven b the emphasis is on Israel's shame. And when we get there, we're going to look at the doctrine of shame. In in verse eight, the emphasis is again on Israel's shame. And then in verse 9 the emphasis goes back to divine mercy. Then in verses 9 through 11 the emphasis is goes back to Israel's rebellion. And then in verse 11 to 14 the emphasis is on divine righteousness. Now, if you look at the way I have indented these verses, there is a pattern. It flows in till you hit 7a. 7a through 9a re- repeat each other. You have divine righteousness, then Israel shame, Israel shame, then divine mercy. So that this is, forms a classic pattern of a literary structure called a chiasm. It looks, if you draw the letter X, which is the Greek word Kai, then it reflects the left-hand side of that letter chi. And the purpose of this kind of literary structure is to emphasize what's in the middle. And what's in the middle here is the emphasis on divine righteousness in contrast to Israel's shame because of their disobedience. And that is the core of understanding biblical confession, because what we see here is a perfect example of what is involved in confession. Now, Daniel begins by saying, I prayed. This is the hithpa'el, imperfect, of the Hebrew word pa'lel, which is expressed in the first person, which is a cohortative of request. It's not an imperative. It's not a demand. It's a request. And the basic root meaning of pa'lel is to intervene, to interpose. It can also mean to arbitrate a conflict to judge between options, to intercede. In a few contexts, it even means to investigate or to argue as a lawyer presenting a case before a judge. So all of these meanings are involved in the word palel, and so it has a certain intensiveness to it uh, as an intercessor comes before God arguing for his case that God would grant him a petition. He prays to the Lord my God. All of our prayers are directed and should be directed to God the Father. The reason we say that is not simply because Jesus prayed to God the Father. Who else would Jesus pray to except for God the Father? That's usually the argument that you always hear. The reason we pray to God the Father is because Jesus is interceding for us and the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. And since both the Son and the Spirit are interceding for us, they are not to be the ones that we are to go to in intercession. You don't go to the intermediate. You go to the one who's at the head of the chain of command. And so prayer goes to God the Father. I pray to the Lord my God and confessed and said. So right here we're introduced to prayer and to two the first two aspects of prayer. As I've taught prayer here many times, we need to remember it in terms of an acronym. The acronym is CATS. C-A-T-S. The C stands for confession, the A for adoration, the T for thanksgiving, and the S for supplication. Now, supplications come in two varieties. We have uh, intercession for others, which is the nature of this prayer, intercession for the nation Israel, and then we have petitions, which are personal requests. So in this chapter, we see an example of a prayer of confession, we see the use of adoration, and we see the uh, function of intercession as Daniel intercedes for the nation. Now, I want you to notice Daniel doesn't jump right into confession. He begins by focusing on the character of God. Now the word here for confession is the Hebrew word Yada in the Hithpael stem, and this word occurs a hundred times in the Old Testament, and um sixty six of those times or two thirds of them occur in the Psalms. So if you want to get an idea of what's involved in confession, read some of David's confessional psalms and what it means. And it doesn't mean, as we so often think it does, to emote or to feel sorry for your sins. Now, you may feel sorry for your sins, and as we're going to see here, there is legitimacy to feeling sorry for sin at times. But it is not that emotion that goes with it that impresses God. That's the point. See, sometimes we're so adamant and making sure people don't understand that feeling sorry for your sin isn't what impresses God that we overstate the case. And people think it's wrong to feel sorry for your sin. It's, you know, sometimes when you disobey your parents when you were a kid, you felt bad. There's nothing wrong with feeling bad, but that's not the point. And that's not the issue. The issue is admission of guilt and then changing your behavior. How you feel about it is merely a secondary thing, and sometimes that's important in order to just get your attention. So Daniel, uh, Daniel says, I pray to the Lord and I confess. This is the uh, the word yada, which means in some cases to praise, in other places to thank, give thanks, and in other places to Confess in the sense of admitting or acknowledging guilt. Remember, there are many different ways we, we can confess the glory of God. That means to admit that God has glory. We can confess the attributes of God. That's the sense of prayer. Confession simply means to acknowledge something. So when you acknowledge the greatness of God or the glory of God or His omniscience, you are confessing that. You are admitting it. You are acknowledging it. So in that sense, you can see that the word confession doesn't carry with it an emotional connotation. What it means is to admit or to acknowledge guilt. And we see this in passages like Psalm 32, five, which is in one of the confession psalms, where David says, I acknowledged my sin to thee. See, that's a parallel with confess. I acknowledged my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. So by looking at the parallelism, the synonymous parallelism embedded in that psalm, we can see that confess means to acknowledge guilt, to acknowledge sin. And by guilt, I don't mean guilt feelings. I mean the fact that we have violated God's absolutes and God's standards. Another usage of this word is in Proverbs 28:13, where we read, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, that is, to not admit or to cover up our sin; the result is that he will not prosper. Why? Because there will be divine discipline. But he who confesses and forsakes them—so confession is admission of guilt; forsaking them is staying in fellowship. It is abiding in Christ, as we're studying on Sunday morning in First John. It is staying inside the soul fortress and walking in obedience. John, um, Paul puts it uh, in Galatians 5:16: walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. Now, as we look at the way Daniel starts this prayer, we see that as he starts to address the problem, he's recognizing the core issue is sin. See, the problem wasn't national policies. It wasn't national politics. It wasn't that the Jews had, uh, had some sort of historical flaw. Uh, The problem wasn't that they didn't have the technology or the military skills necessary to defeat uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. The problem was sin. See, that is something that we've lost in our modern societies. We don't want to acknowledge sin, and even among many believers, they will acknowledge it in an academic sense, but when it comes to uh, -to day-to-day living, we don't want to admit sin. We don't want to really acknowledge sin and that our failures are our own. We don't want to admit responsibility for our own failures. And that's true for believers as well as unbelievers. And we live in an age when a doctrine such as total depravity, a total depravity means that man in every part of his being is affected by sin. It doesn't mean he's as bad as he can be. It means that he is comprehensively affected by sin. Every part of his soul has been impacted by Adam's fall and that the basic problem is sin, and despite the fact that every day we're faced with the evidence of man's depravity, whether we're watching films of uh, what happened on September 11th, where we're watching uh, those commercials where you see hundreds if not thousands of children who are starving to death out in the sub-Sahara Africa, whether it has to do with uh, the horrible uh, homicide bombers that are in Israel right now, uh, whether it has to do with crime or poverty in our own country, every day we face that, and yet you you read the pundits in the papers, you read the uh, the editorials, you listen to the commentators on TV, and there's this, this stubborn refusal to accept the fact that it's due to man's own bad decisions. Because in the, their view, man is inherently good, and yet the view of the Bible is that man is inherently evil. Man is inherently bad because of Adam's original sin. It's like the, that book that came out that was so popular. It's another form of pop psychology back in the 70s. I'm okay, you're okay. Remember that? The Bible says, I'm not okay and neither are you. So God really doesn't want you to have a good self-image. He wants you to have a good understanding of what it means to be dependent upon him. So, Daniel's prayer focuses on the reality of sin and that Israel's national calamity and the crisis in Israel's uh, history and the defeat by the Babylonians is the result of their own disobedience, their own sin, their own negative volition, their own failure put, to put doctrine first. So, he prays to the Lord, and he says, I prayed to the Lord my God and I acknowledged or I admitted our guilt and said, Alas, O Lord. Notice how he begins. He begins with praise. Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God. This is his adoration. He takes this title from Deuteronomy. And the first thing he's going to do in prayer is focus on the divine attributes. He's going to focus on the character of God. He doesn't just jump into confession. He focuses on who God is because that's the basis for forgiveness at confession. So he doesn't just run right into confession. He takes takes a minute to focus on who he, is, who he is confessing to. It's not just an issue of admitting our sins. It is going to the sovereign God of the universe and admitting our violation of his law and his character. Alas, O oh Lord, With and by law I don't mean Mosaic law. I mean the absolutes as revealed in Scripture. And I prayed to the Lord my God and admitted and said, Alas, O oh Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keeps his commandments. He reminds God of who he is and what he has promised. In the same way in the church age, we can go to the Lord in confession and remind God that you're the God who redeemed us and paid the price for our sin at the cross. That's the basis for what's going to happen next, and that's admission of the sin. We have forgiveness because of what happened at the cross. So we can go to God and say, Father, you... You have uh, saved me, you redeemed me, you sent Christ to die on the cross for my sins, my sins are paid for, and this is what I have done in my sin. And that's verse 5. But Daniel is focusing on who God is. First, he is the God who keeps his covenant. He reminds God of the Mosaic law and the promises that God made in that covenant. And then he focuses on his character as faithful. And that comes across in the word that is usually translated loving-kindness, and this is the Hebrew word chesed. The Hebrew word chesed is one that has driven uh, translators crazy because it has a, uh, a very complex meaning. Chesed, C-H-E-S-E-D. It's not simply love, but it emphasizes God's faithfulness, and his loyalty to, the, to his covenant, despite the disloyalty of Israel. So I like to emphasize the fact that it is the faithful, loyal, steadfast love of God. It never changes. It does not waffle when we waffle. It doesn't uh, increase. It doesn't diminish. It is always the same, and it is based on his integrity and his promise In his covenant. That's why we include love with God's integrity. His righteousness, his justice, and his love are the core attributes in divine integrity. He emphasizes God is the one who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Notice once again that love for God is related to keeping his commandments. When Jesus summarized the Mosaic Law, he said it, the, the, the law is summarized in two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So all 613 commandments in the Mosaic Law are a definition of what it means to love God. And Daniel is reiterating that here, that God keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. So being obedient is how we demonstrate love for God. It's not how we feel. It's not any kind of emotion that's generated inside. It has to do with our obedience to Him, to study and learn doctrine, making it a priority, and then applying it. And then in verse 5, it comes to the problem. But first, Deuteronomy 5.10, God is the one who shows loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And then again, in Deuteronomy 6.5, we have the statement, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your might. Then in Daniel nine five, Daniel gets to the confession proper. He says, We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled. Four different key Hebrew words for sin, even turning aside from thy commandments and ordinances. So here he begins to focus on the sin, and the first word he uses is the Hebrew word chatah, which means to miss the mark. It was used for shooting an arrow, missing the target, throwing a spear and tar- missing the target. And it came to refer to missing the standard of God's righteousness. So when, it, when Daniel says, we have sinned, he says, we have missed the mark of the divine standard. Secondly, he says, we have committed iniquity. This is the Hebrew word avah, which means to uh, damage something, to bend something out of shape. And it emphasizes the fact that sin damages the soul. Sin twisted out of shape. Sin has twisted God's original intent for the creation. The whole creation now suffers under the curse of sin. Romans chapter 8, the, the universe of the creation even now groans, waiting for its ultimate redemption when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. So we have sinned. We've missed the mark. We've committed iniquity. That is, we are bent out of shape. Our thinking is twisted. Our standards are thinking. Our, our standards are... are um, are twisted and misshapen, and human arrogance has distorted everything that we did. Third, he says, we acted wickedly. This is the hyphil perfect of rasha, which means to be wicked, to violate the law, to bring in chaos. Isaiah 57.20 uses the word in that same sense as uh, uh, bringing in chaos. So wickedness is bringing in chaos through disobedience to God's word. Isaiah, Isaiah 57.20 states, but the wicked are like the tossing sea. Notice the imagery here, the chaos of the wicked, like the tossing sand, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. Fourth, Daniel says, we rebelled. Even And then he intensifies that through an intensive use of the Hebrew conjunction vav. says, we rebelled, that is, we turned aside "...from thy commandments and ordinances." That's what rebellion is. It is a rejection of God's revelation. It's a rejection of God's commandments and ordinances. In order to avoid violating God's commandments and ordinances, we must first study Scripture. Now, rebellion is a key to understanding what Israel did, and their rebellion, their revolution, had its core in rejecting divine authority. So let's just briefly look at what the Old Testament says about revolution, the doctrine of revolution. First of all, the Bible never authorizes revolution in any sphere of life. And revolution is defined as rejection of authority. The Bible never authorizes revolution, whether it is in the personal realm of family, marriage, or in a corporation, or in a nation. Number 16 is a perfect picture in the Old Testament of a revolution taking place in the nation Israel as they rejected God's provision when the twelve spies went into the land. They rejected provision. Uh, There, again, they rejected provision during the uh, revolt that takes place after that among the priesthood. Second point, revolution is a rejection of divinely established authority. ...of divinely established authority, whether that is a national authority, a president, a king, a dictator. Remember, one of the greatest passages on the importance of obedience to a national entity was written by Paul in Romans chapter 13, when Nero is on the, is ruling Rome, one of the most wicked, evil rulers in all of human history. 1 Samuel 15:23 states, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you for being king. That was Saul's rebellion against God when he disobeyed God. God compared that rebellion to witchcraft. So that brings us to point number four, and that is that revolution is anti-God. It is against God, Isaiah 31, 6. Now, the reason revolution is against God is because it's a rejection of his authority and it is a picture, it is a reflection of exactly what Satan did when he began the angelic conflict, when Satan, in his arrogance, rejected God. That is why rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft, is because it has its roots in the initial rebellion of Lucifer against God. Point number five, revolution on a national scale is caused by a breakdown in the thinking ability of a nation. But it doesn't start there. It starts on the individual level. First, individuals in a nation begin to violate the revelation of God. They begin to disobey His commandments. They disobey the Scripture. Then, as they are going through revolt in their own personal soul, in their own soul, they're rejecting doctrine then it works its way out in terms of the next divine institution, which is marriage. Just lay them out in terms of divine institutions. I think somebody's getting ready to teach uh, divine establishment in the prep school, and you need to emphasize the five divine institutions. First divine institution is individual responsibility. And the authority in the soul is volition. And when the volition goes negative to God, then you start to have a breakdown in the soul. Eventually, this is going to impact the second divine institution, which is marriage. And when marriage begins to break down and women begin to reject the authority of the husbands, you start having a role reversal between men and women in society. Men become feminized. Women become masculinized. And we, we are seeing that in our own culture. The next thing that happens is divine institution number three, which is the family. Begins to break down. Family unit begins to break down. And you have a situation now in our nation where at least half the marriages end in divorce. And so you have kids being raised in the, in a broken home or with one parent. And they have uh, all kinds of extra problems to have to deal with. And they learn that the way to solve problems is through rejection of authority. And so that builds into the kids uh, of the next generation this attitude of arrogance and rebellion. Then that begins to affect the fourth divine institution, which is human government. And there is a rejection against, uh, I mean a rebellion against an individual government, and then the fifth divine institution, which is the creation of nations and the independence of nations. And so you begin to reject God and move towards internationalism internationalism, and we're seeing a lot of this today. In fact, it's interesting that last week in the midst of um, all the things that are going on in Israel right now, the World Court went online last Thursday, and the World Court is going the first action they took is to review whether or not to bring Ariel Sharon up on uh, war crimes. So we can see the whole thrust of the international community, is against uh, Israel. And we can thank uh, our former president for being the one who signed uh, the U.S. into membership and into, uh, into membership for the uh, world court. So there's a breakdown. That leads to point six. When the majority of people in a nation are in sole revolt through drugs, pornography, sodomy, sexual perversion, feminism, liberalism, and socialism, then the result is the fragmentation of the nation. When the majority of the people in a nation are in soul revolt through drugs, pornography, sodomy, sexual perversion, feminism, liberalism, and socialism, then the result is a fragmentation of the nation. When the nation fragments, that leads to point seven, these mental attitude sins and overt sins motivate revolution. They motivate uh, rejection of authority, because authority seeks to bring con- the sin nature under control. And the result then is the nation begins to fall apart. Some scripture on this, Isaiah 11, 13, 1 Kings 12, 19, in comparison with 1 Chronicles 10, 19. Point number eight, the only solution is the communication of doctrine and res- positive response to doctrine. That alone will stabilize society. Ezekiel 2, verses 3 through 10. So the problem in Israel is they've rejected God. Personal revolt against God eventually led to national revolt against God, and the nation fragmented on the inside. Then we come to Daniel 9, verse 6. He begins to expand on his confession. First he says, we've, we've sinned, we've, Missed the mark of your righteousness. We've committed iniquity. We've twisted your standards all out of proportion. We acted uh, wickedly. We brought in chaos and we revolted against your commands. Furthermore, verse six: We have not listened. Negative volition. They violated the principle of James, being quick to hear. We have not listened to thy servants, the prophets, who spoke in thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. The prophets represented God. Uh, they spoke in Thy name. That is an Hebrew idiom indicating they were God's representatives. God sent the prophets to Israel, representing Him. And often, when the prophets, when Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are presenting their charge against Israel, they use a Hebrew word called "reeve." And "reeve" was a technical, um, was was a technical legal term for bringing a lawsuit. And what has happened is that God, as the author of the Mosaic Covenant, is sending his emissaries, the prophets, to the nation to challenge them with a lawsuit that they have violated the covenant. And because they violated the covenant, then God, who is the initiator of the covenant, has a right to come in and fulfill the the cursing or judgment, um, judgment categories that are listed in that covenant, all the different areas of judgment. So the the prophets functioned almost as a prosecuting attorney bringing a charge against the nation and Daniel says it again and again you rejected the prophets and this is what Daniel I mean what Jeremiah says Jeremiah 7:25 since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day I have sent you all my servants the prophets daily rising early and sending them but they were continuously rejected God says it again verse Jeremiah twenty-five verse four, and the Lord has sent to you all His servants the prophets again and again, but you have not listened or inclined your ear to them. Jeremiah twenty-nine nineteen reiterates the same principle because they have not listened to My words, declares the Lord, which I sent to them again and again by My servants the prophets, but you did not listen, declares the Lord. And then Jeremiah thirty-five fifteen, God says again, also I have sent to you all My servants the prophets sending them again and again, saying, Turn now every man from his evil way, and amend your deeds, and do not go after other gods to worship them. Then you shall dwell in the land which I have given to you and to your forefathers, but you have not inclined your ear or listened to me. So because of their failure to listen to the prophets, to respond and apply doctrine, then God is going to remove them from the land. So in verses 5 and 6, we have a rehearsal of Israel's disobedience. This is an illustration of what it means to confess sin. And then in verses 7 through 9, we're going to see the emphasis on God's righteousness. That's the standard that we violate. That's why it's important to remind ourselves of God's righteousness. That's the standard in the midst of confession of sin. And there is the contrast between God's righteousness and Israel's shame. Notice these verses. Verse 7 Righteousness belongs to thee, O Lord. It's an emphasis on God's perfect righteousness. So that's the absolute standard in the universe. But to us, open shame. Now, this is a strong contrast in the Hebrew. In fact, literally it says, Righteousness belongs to thee, O Lord, but to us, open shame. Open shame indicates public humiliation, historical humiliation as the nation was defeated by the forces of Nebuchadnezzar, and national Embarrassment, And what the scriptures are emphasizing here, what Daniel is emphasizing, is disobedience to God left unchecked, left undealt with through confession of sin will lead to public humiliation and shame. The principle is it's better to be shamed and humiliated in time than at the judgment seat of Christ. And so if we don't deal with the sin in our life by keeping short accounts through confession of sin, then God is eventually going to... Uh, lower the boom, and he uses shame and embarrassment and public disgrace as a 2x12 to get our attention. He starts off with a 2x4, and then he goes to a 2x6, and then a 2x8. And by the time he gets up in the area of a 2x10 and a 2x12, there's going to be some public humiliation because of our disobedience to him. The word for shame is the word bullshit, which emphasizes disgrace, humiliation, embarrassment, and a public display of disgrace because of failure to obey God. So let's close by briefly looking at the six points on the doctrine of shame. First point, God brings shame on the believer who continuously disobeys him. God will bring shame on the believer who continuously disobeys him. God actively brings that shame on. Jeremiah 17, 13 says, O Lord, the the hope of Israel, all who forsake thee will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. God will bring them to shame. In that verse, it's the shame related to those who have rejected salvation. Verse point number two. Shame is part of an intensification of divine discipline. There are three stages in divine discipline. Warning discipline, Intensive discipline and dying discipline. Jeremiah 6.15 states, Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. That is the condemnation to the generation that went out under the fifth cycle of discipline. Point number three. Shame is public humiliation in order to enforce humility. Shame is public humiliation in order to enforce humility. God doesn't start with public embarrassment, but if we do not respond to warning discipline, then that's where it ends up. Point number four, the end goal is not shame or embarrassment. That doesn't bring pleasure to God. The end goal is not shame or embarrassment, but obedience. Shame is the two by twelve God's going to use to get our attention, to confess our sins, to get back in fellowship and start walking by the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel sixteen sixty three states, In order that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation, when I have forgiven you for all that you have done. Point number five, the issue, therefore, is to confess and move on, to admit our guilt, to keep short accounts with God, and to stay in fellowship and walk by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, point six, I want to cover when it's wrong to feel shame. There are two situations when it's wrong to feel shame. First of all, when you have done nothing wrong, when you are free from guilt, and you're the victim of some crime or some sin, like child abuse, rape, or sexual abuse. Often a person who is a victim of a crime like that, or of an abuse like that, feels shame. That is wrong, and you need to address that by claiming the promises from Scripture. The second a second time in which it's wrong to feel shame is when you have confessed your sin and it is forgiven, and yet you continue to uh, feel guilty over it. You continue to bring it up. You continue to feel shame and embarrassment even after you have been forgiven. Once we have been forgiven, the slate is wiped clean. The sin is removed for us from us as far as the east is from the west, the Scripture says. And therefore, <clears throat> when we bring it back up, we're basically saying, God, you really didn't forgive me. You really don't mean what you promised. So it's wrong to feel shame when we've done nothing wrong and we're the victim of some crime or sin. And it's wrong to feel shame when we have confessed the sin and it's forgiven. Then it's time to move on. We may be embarrassed because of physical consequences that we still have to deal with, but we need to recognize that the sin is always against the Lord, and so we can then hold our head up high and move forward and be freed from emotional guilt and embarrassment that was caused by our own bad Decisions. Now, next time we'll come back and we'll finish up with, the, with Daniel's confession and the petition in this prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and understand uh, the dynamic of what's involved in confession and admitting our guilt to avoid uh, increasing punishment and, and continued discipline. Father, we realize that our goal is to avoid shame at the judgment seat of Christ and to glorify you here in time And so we recognize the importance of your discipline. Father, we thank you for your grace, that your grace not only provides us salvation for us, but it also provides everything we need to handle every problem we face in life, whether it's the result of our own bad decisions or whether it's simply the result of living in the cosmic system. Father, we thank you for the example we have in Daniel's prayer and pray that would challenge us in our own prayer life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.